All right, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 18. And thank you, Quentin Woods, for leading us in our song service today, especially those last three songs. Yeah, I was looking at that at our order of worship earlier, Higher Ground, Light the Fire, We Shall Assemble at the Mountain. All those are fitting for this sermon series that we've been in this summer called Meeting God on the Mountain. And today, we're going to go with Elijah the prophet Elijah, and we're going to meet God on Mount Carmel. So go ahead and turn to 1 Kings 18 and, and be ready to follow along here in just a moment when we start going through that. Uh, there's a guy named Bill Hull that wrote a book on discipleship, great book on discipleship, and he tells a short little story, short little example in his book about two women who went to church one day. They worshiped together, close friends, and in the parking lot after church was over, after worship was over, they were headed to their cars having a conversation, and one lady said to the other lady, I didn't really care too much for that today. And her friend quickly responded and said, good, because we weren't there to worship you. Uh -huh. <laughs> I thought I'd get somebody say amen at that, yeah, we're not there to worship you, what, what does it matter, you know, is what she was saying. But sometimes the, the focus of our worship can be a little off, can get a little confused. And the question that's going to kind of work behind, or really in the backbone of this sermon today, is who or what do you worship? Probably a question that any human being who's ever lived could ask themselves and do a little honest inventory of their own lives. Who and what do you worship? I think as followers of Jesus Christ, on a Sunday morning, I ask this question, you're probably thinking, I worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do, that is great. But let's dig into this just a little bit to try to get an answer for, our, for maybe ourselves. It was always good to look within yourself before you point the finger at anybody else. So just think to yourself, who or what do you worship with your life? I've used this example before, so I won't get into great detail on it, but this guy, this is a picture of a guy named David Foster Wallace. Uh, he gave a graduation speech at Kenyon College in 2005, and that's probably what he's most well-known for. It's a, quite a famous speech, and towards the end of this speech, after he's had everybody laughing, after he's everybody, had everybody thinking, and he's given a totally different approach to talking to college students uh, that are graduating, going into the world, instead of trying to inspire them, he's telling them about what real life and as an adult is going to look like. You're going to sit in traffic, or you're going to sit in long lines at the grocery store. That's how he was preparing them to go into the real world. But towards the end of this speech, he said, I believe there's no such thing as atheism. I, there's no such thing as atheism, and he's not a, a believer or a Christian, to my knowledge. He said, I don't think there's any such thing as atheism because everybody worships. There's no such thing as not worshiping. And honestly, even though I may have different beliefs than he had, I agree with that. I think everybody worships something or someone. So let's dig into that a little bit more. What is worship? How would you define worship? Well, if you leave today and you're having the conversation or you're trying to explain it to somebody, you would probably say the song service. Because most of the time when we think of worship, and, and I think that the song service is really important, but we're not, we're not limited to just the songs that we sing. Worship is more about our lives, our whole life. Okay, so I, a guy named Kyle Ottoman wrote a book several years ago called God's at War, and I'm going to use his definition of worship uh, to give us an idea of what it means for who and what we worship and the fact that everybody worships. I'm breaking this down into three bullet points. Kyle Eidelman 
basically, in summary, said that worship is what we put our hope in or where we put our hope. Worship is what we pursue, what we chase after. If there is something that we put our hope in and then we align our lives to chase after and pursue whatever it is that we put our hope in and worship is what we are willing to sacrifice for. Now that is a broader definition than just coming to Sunday morning and singing. This is about our whole life. Whatever it is that you are hoping in, pursuing with your life, and sacrificing for, that is what you worship. In the ancient world, most people probably had, were polytheistic and believed in multiple gods, and they would go to temples, maybe bow down to idols, or they would believe in the god of the, the sun or the moon or the stars or the god of sex or the god of the hunt, and you could go on and on. They had all these different little g gods. And in our world today, in our modern world, it's obvious we don't really see that as often. Most people would say that they're not even religious, but... If it's true that everybody worships, then really we end up worshiping a lot of things, and we don't realize that we're worshiping it, like money. Jesus often warned, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money, and yet so many people, whether you're believers or not, wind up worshiping money without even realizing that you're doing it or worshiping success, or worshiping the human body, or sexuality, or, or our appetites, or our pleasures. We wind up worshiping in so many ways that we don't realize it. So who or what are you worshiping? Today we're going to Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18. And on Mount Carmel, this is the mountain where you have to make a decision. And we're going to see that here in just a moment. We already read it in our scripture reading earlier. But Mount Carmel is a mountain where you have to make a decision on who or what you are going to serve, who or what you are going to worship. And it's not just for the Israelites that have to make this decision. This is the decision that we have to make as well. We're going to pick up in verse 17 and 18. I'm going to read these two verses, give you a little background, and then we'll move through this story. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, troubler of Israel? He answered, I have not troubled Israel, but... You have in your father's house, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the bells. All right, let's pause on those two verses. Let's give a little bit of background without overloading you with information. First of all, uh, when this conversation takes place between Ahab and Elijah, they're, they're in the middle of a drought. The drought's been going on for several years. Because of the drought, crops aren't growing. There is a famine in the land. When this drought started... You could go back to 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. All of a sudden, there's a guy named Elijah. We know Elijah as this great prophet. Well, he appears on the scene, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, and he announces to King Ahab that there's going to be a drought for several years. And then Elijah disappears. Now, we know a little bit about what Elijah was doing while he disappeared. He was being fed by ravens, living off by himself somewhere, and then he hung out with a widow and her son for a few years. And it's kind of quiet, kind of behind the scenes. He announces the drought disappears. And we believe that during that time, during those few years, God was refining Elijah. God was preparing him for this mountaintop moment that he is about to have. Now Elijah has reappeared and he's come to King Ahab, which is the other character in the two verses that we just read. You can read more about King Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29 through 33. He was a very evil king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, more evil than any other king. He married Jezebel. That's a name that may sound familiar. Uh, she was trying to kill the prophets of the Lord. 
And then uh, he started worshiping Baal, made a temple for Baal, made an Asherah pole and worshiped Asherah, which depending on what source you're reading, Asherah was either considered the mother of Baal or the wife of Baal. But either way, he is making it uh, accessible and easy for the Israelites to worship both Yahweh but also Baal. So let's talk about Baal for just a minute. I am using the pronunciation Baal. Now, if you study scholars or you study people that uh, get a little fancy with their pronunciation, it may be Baal or something like that. I've heard a lot of different pronunciations. Baal is how I've always heard it pronounced in East Texas, and that's what I'm going with today because that's the language you speak as well. So we're calling him Baal. In case anybody out there is a smarty pants and wants to say, oh, you're not pronouncing it right. Just I'm going ahead and give me the disclaimer. This is how I pronounce it, Baal. Okay, Baal was considered the storm god or the rain god, or the rider of the clouds. In the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, most cultures worshipped Baal in some form or fashion. They believed that this god, little g-god, this false god, provided rain. And rain was really important because that's how your crops would grow, and that's how you would get food, that's how you would eat. So there is Baal for you. It was Worship of Baal was a constant temptation for Israel. If you've ever read through the Old Testament and you think, I keep seeing B-A-A-L all throughout the Old Testament, it's because they were constantly tempted to worship Baal. And the problem really was what we would call syncretism. You know, so we read last week the Ten Commandments. We went to Mount Sinai. God says in Commandments number one and two, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make an image or bow down to an image or an idol. And when they go into the promised land, they're surrounded by other cultures who have all these different gods that they worship. Well, slowly and maybe methodically, and especially when it's encouraged by the king, they start to have this both-and approach where they think, well, we'll worship both Yahweh and Baal, or we'll worship both Yahweh and these other gods. But the Lord God, Yahweh, has said it's not both and, it's either or. Either you worship me or you don't. You can't ride the fence. You can't be in the middle somewhere. Okay, now back to verse 17 and 18. When King Ahab, there's your background, and Elijah meet up with each other, did you notice what Ahab called Elijah? He said, you troubler of Israel, or you troublemaker. See, Ahab is blaming Elijah, I think, for the drought. There's been no rain for several years, which Elijah announced, and King Ahab is thinking, because you're claiming that we can only worship Yahweh and ignoring Baal, Baal has not sent rain. Well, Elijah quickly snaps back in verse 18, and he said, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You are in your father's household because you have worshipped these false gods. So let's go to a contest. That's always the next best step. So that's what happens in verse 19 and 20. He says, Now therefore have all Israel assemble for me at Mount Carmel with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, which I believe they no-show because we don't read about them in the contest here. They eat at Jezebel's table, verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Carmel. All right, we'll take a minute. We'll pause here. We'll look at Mount Carmel because this summer... We are meeting God on the mountains, several mountains that appear throughout Scripture. Last week we talked about the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Today we go to Mount Carmel. If you looked on a map, Mount Carmel, even still to this day, is close to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Back then, if you looked at a map, it was right on the border of Israel and Phoenicia. So it's a great place for a showdown of the gods. 
Mount Carmel is very green, so even in a drought, uh, the mountain would probably be the least likely place that you would notice that there had been a drought, and its elevation is about 1,750 feet. There's a little bit of background on this mountain. It's not a super high mountain, but it's green, and it seems to be wide, so it can fit a lot of people on top of this mountain. Elijah offers a challenge. Get your prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, who knows show, and meet me on top of this mountain. Okay, that's the challenge that's offered overall, and King Ahab, he accepts the challenge. Sure, good, we'll meet you there. Why? Now, if you're paying real close attention, if you're King Ahab and you don't like Elijah, why not just kill him on the spot? He's finally reappeared. Why does Ahab accept this challenge? Well, it's probably because he's thinking that he's going to humiliate Elijah on top of this mountain, and then he's going to kill him. So he accepts the challenge. Verse 21, in my opinion, is the key verse of our lesson today and of understanding this whole chapter. Verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. Now, I think this is the key verse in this moment that Elijah is having on the mountain, we're assuming. Everybody has gathered on the mountain. They're getting ready for this contest. And Elijah puts this proposal in front of them. How long will you go on limping? Now, uh, the NIV uses the word wavering. Uh, limping is probably a better translation. But it's not a, a real common English word. Like, we don't use that in sentences very often. How long will you limp between these two different opinions? But as one scholar put it, it's almost like if you come to a fork in the road, and you can either go to the right or the left, you try to take both paths. Like, you walk a little bit on the left, and then you walk a little bit on the right, but, but you're not choosing between the two. That's what limping is. You're, you're trying to waver back and forth. Or There's a guy named Robert Alter in his Hebrew uh, commentary and translation of the Hebrew Bible. He said it's like if you're standing on two rocks and there's a crack between the rock and you're awkwardly hopping back and forth trying to straddle and be on both rocks at the same time, trying to have it both ways, but it won't work like that. That's the word that Elijah uses. He said, how long will you go on limping back and forth, trying to have it both ways between Yahweh and between Baal and what he's saying here? It's choose who you're going to follow. Make a decision. Instead of going back and forth and trying to have it both, you need to make a decision. Kind of like Joshua, son of Nun, at one point where he said, choose this day who you will follow. As for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. This is Elijah's moment to propose a similar question. MSNBC came out with this article on flexitarians many years ago. And just in summary about this article, there are those out there who claim to be vegetarians, but they also like to eat a little bit of meat. So one girl was interviewed, her name was Christy Pugh, and she said, I am a vegetarian. However, I like sausage, so occasionally I will eat sausage. So she said, I'm a vegetarian, I'm just not 100% committed. And then they interviewed vegetarians, and guess how vegetarians felt about this? They didn't like it. They said, either you're all in or you're not in at all. Either you're a vegetarian or you're not a vegetarian, and if she's eating a little bit of meat, she's not a, she's not a vegetarian, she's a, a flexitarian. 
So they came up with this new name called flexitarians. Vegetarians don't like them, apparently. I, don't, I would never know, and I probably will never know, because I'm never going to be a vegetarian, and this is no offense to those who are, but they're looking at these other group of people saying, you're flexitarians. That describes the people of Israel really well. They're flexitarians. They're going back and forth between Yahweh and Baal. Sometimes they go to the temple and they pray to Baal. Sometimes they continue to pray to Yahweh. It's like they can't choose between the two, but Elijah here says, no, you have to choose. And by the way, flexitarian probably describes uh, a lot of us as followers of Jesus. And I'm not just saying the world, maybe a lot of us as well. We say we follow Jesus Christ. We are disciples of Jesus, and yet maybe there's something over here that we want to indulge in, a sinful habit or behavior. We'll indulge in that a little bit, but I'm still committed to Christ. So we try to be flexitarians, and what Elijah is saying on Mount Carmel, that's not going to work. You have come to a moment where you're on this mountain, and you have to make a decision. So the way that Elijah is going to go about forcing them to make this decision, if you look, I'll start paraphrasing just a little bit in verse 22 through 25. Uh, he's going to give the details of the challenge. As I've been reading through this story, it makes me think of a UFC fight or a boxing match and the pre-fight pre instructions. Or you have an announcer and they tell about who's in what corner. So in one corner you have Elijah who is all by himself and he represents Yahweh. He's a prophet by himself. In the other corner you have 450 prophets of Baal. And, and the ref brings him into the center and he says, here are the rules. You're going to get two altars. One for Baal, one for Yahweh. You're going to get a bull. You're going to cut it up. You're going to put it on the altar. Don't light it on fire and pray to your God. And whichever God sends fire onto that sacrifice, that is the true God and that will be the winner of the contest. And the last thing the ref always says before a fight is touch gloves if you want to and go back to your corner. And so at the end of this in, in verse 24, they all said, well spoken. So it's like they touch gloves, they go to their corners. Elijah says, you get to go first. In the next few verses, the prophets of Baal, they, they prepare their bull, they put it on the altar, and they begin to pray to Baal. In verse 26, they took the bull that was given them, prepared it, called on the name of Baal, from morning until noon, crying, O Bell, answer us. But there was no voice and no answer. They limped about on the altar that they had made. There's that word limp again. So they put their bull on there. They're probably hoping deep down inside that the fire will come. But after a few minutes, maybe even a few hours, because from morning until noon, nothing's happening. So they limp around the altar, hop around the altar. Some writers would say it's kind of like a frenzied dance. Like they're, they're doing these weird, desperate things to try to get the attention of their God. Hours go by, and you have, I'm guessing, like flies all around this dead bull. There's blood everywhere, and they're just waiting and waiting and anticipating for the fire to come. So Elijah speaks up in verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, surely he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he has wandered away, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. <laughs> it's a little sarcastic. He's mocking him a little bit. 
When I first read this, my initial reaction was, why is he mocking them? Is it because of years of pent-up frustration, because they've tolerated Baal worship? Well, one thing I do know is Elijah's mocking them because he's really trying to stress the point that there is nothing there. They're praying to a God that does not exist. And so he's stressing that point by mocking them. Verse 28 and 29, they're going to turn to more desperate means. And it says, Then they cried aloud, and as was their custom, they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out over them. At midday, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no answer, no response. They get desperate. They go from this limping, this frenzied dance, and now they're cutting themselves, practicing something called blood spurting, because they believe that if blood would spurt out of them as kind of this desperate, extreme measure, that will get the attention of the gods. We've been dancing, we've been crying, we've been praying, and he's not answering. So now we're here on Mount Carmel, we're starting to get embarrassed, come on, and they're cutting themselves and blood's coming out, and still nothing. No voice, no answer, no response. Probably their fear deep down inside is all this time, maybe their whole lives, that they've been praying, offering their money, offering their sacrifices to a God that has never, ever been there at all. And that is what I think they're starting to discover. Okay, now it's Elijah's turn in verse 30 through 35, and I'll paraphrase this. He sets up the altar. He sets up the bull. He involves all the Israelites that are on the mountain with him. Sets up 12 stones representing the spiritual unity of the Israelites, even though they were politically divided at the time. They pour large amounts of water onto the sacrifice as if to make the miracle of the fire even greater because the sacrifice is soaking wet, so much water that it goes down into these trenches that he has dug around there. Then Elijah is going to pray. Okay, so this is kind of towards the end of the day. They've been on the mountain all day. The prophets of Baal are all bloodied up and beat up, and nothing's happened for them. Elijah's over here kind of making a, a big display out of what's going on, and now he prays. In verse 36, in 37, he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your bidding. I want you to keep in mind, according to what Elijah is praying here, this was God's idea. So God told him to do this, which I think it means that we don't go out trying to orchestrate a similar contest, putting God to the test as if we can put God and tame him like an animal and say, do what you want us to do, what we want you to do. So this is maybe kind of like a one-time thing. I don't know, just keep that in mind. It says, I've done these things at your bidding. In verse 37, answer me, O Lord. Answer me so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and then you have turned their hearts back. So this is the moment we've all been waiting for. I don't know if it was like instant like that, or if he said, like Quentin said earlier, light the fire, what'd you say, light it up? Light it up, you know, maybe in the modern world that's how he would have concluded his prayer. Light it up, Lord, I don't know. But we do know that the climax of the whole thing, all the suspense that's been building all day, comes in verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and even looked up the water that was in the trench. So finally it's come. 
You've read this story before, a lot of you have, so you knew that was coming, but imagine being on the mountain and not knowing if anything was actually going to happen, and after a whole day of all these people praying and dancing and doing all this stuff, and then finally the fire comes. It's evident. There's no such thing as Baal. Baal does not exist. Baal did not answer. Baal did not show up, but Yahweh did. And he sent fire. So all the people, it says, fell on their faces and and said, the Lord is indeed God, the Lord is indeed God. So now they've turned their hearts back. They've seen this, this miracle, this amazing thing that took place, and they've turned their hearts back to God in verse 40, and we'll kind of stop around there in the text. Elijah kills all the prophets of Baal, which, as I'm reading that from a Christian perspective, part of my thinking is, wouldn't it have been better to try to convert them after they've seen this powerful display? But we won't get into all that right now. We'll stop with the text there, and I'll tell you, that was a mountaintop experience. Something I have mentioned in every sermon so far, these mountaintop experiences that God allows us to have throughout our lives to remind us of his presence, to draw us back to God. But we don't get to live on the mountain. But this was definitely a mountaintop experience, a powerful moment, and a great victory for Elijah and for God. And some of people reading this, you know, there's a lot of people out there that love power, that love miracles. So the question may be, do Mount Carmel experiences still happen today? Would it be possible to get a lot of people together that, are, that claim they don't believe in anything, which is what we see in our culture today, or claim that they believe in some other God, and say, well, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, so let's put up a contest and we'll see which God answers. Do we still do that today? I don't know. I don't really see that. I think Elijah did what he did because God told him to, and unless God tells you to, then that's not something we put God to the test on. So I don't know if Mount Carmel moments still happen today. I may hear some feedback on that one. But what I do know is that Mount Carmel decisions still happen today. Going back to verse 21, that's the point right there. When Elijah says, Stop limping between the two. Make a decision on who you're going to follow. Michael Jordan, and uh, he wrote this book called Driven From Within. He tells a story in the book, uh, and I'll just kind of summarize the story. You know, whether, I don't know how you feel about Michael Jordan or Nike or whatever, but just listen to the kind of the parallel here. But uh, Michael Jordan was at a guy named Fred Whitfield's house. He was the CEO of the NBA. You know, Michael Jordan's one of the greatest basketball players of all time. So they're getting ready to go out to dinner. Michael Jordan says, it's cold and I don't have a coat. Can I borrow one of yours? And Fred Whitfield says, sure, go down the hall and grab whatever coat you would like. And he said that several minutes went by and he started to think, what's taking him so long to pick a coat? A few minutes later, Michael Jordan comes walking down the hallway of somebody else's house and he has gone through his closet and picked out jackets and pants and shoes and he's carrying them in his arms and he throws them on the kitchen counter. And what he did is he went through and he got everything out of Fred's closet that wasn't Nike, so all the Puma clothes, shoes, pants, whatever, and he threw them on the kitchen counter. He pulled out a butcher knife and he chopped it up. Now, I don't recommend you do that to anybody else's house. Maybe Michael Jordan could get away with it because he said, call my Nike representative tomorrow, have him replace everything. But he said, I don't want to see you in anything other than Nike ever again. And then he told him, and in the book he said, you cannot ride the fence. Now this is not a point about basketball or Nike, but I take that as a parallel of idol smashing in this moment where you come to this decision where you can't ride the fence. Either you really follow Jesus Christ 
or you follow something else. But you have to choose. And when we come to the mountaintop and these mountaintop moments, sometimes we have this big rededication to God. Sometimes it is a one-time decision that we have to make. I see that happen at Winterfest, church camps, mission trips, you name it. I've seen it for years and years and years where people will make these big big claims. And when I get back home, I'm going to live as a changed person. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to be going to church. I'm going to be involved. And they make a they have big rededication in their life to the Lord Jesus. But then they get back home and slowly but surely they slip back into their old habits. So I look at these Mount Carmel moments and I'm like, well, what happens if you make this big one-time decision? I'm going to follow Jesus. But then as time goes on, you just kind of slowly slip back into your old self. And then I started thinking, maybe it's less about making a big one-time decision, although that can be important as well. And what if it's more about making these small daily decisions? A Columbia researcher estimated that we make about 70 decisions a day, maybe more or less, depending on the day. But 70 decisions on average a day, so about 25,000 decisions every year. You live to be 70 years old, you've made about 1.75 million decisions in your life. And if you live older than that, you may make over 2 million decisions. And really, life and who we are and what we worship is a sum total of all of these daily decisions that we make. So back to the question that I asked from the beginning, who or what do you worship? Well, today, or maybe any day, you may have to make that decision, I choose to worship Jesus and stop worshiping all these other things. But then you have to keep making that same daily commitment. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anybody wants to come after me, let them deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. But I left out a word. Because in Luke's version of this statement, he doesn't just say, pick up your cross and follow me. He says what? Pick up your cross daily and follow me. The invitation that Jesus gives then and still gives today is to make that decision of who you're going to worship, who you're going to follow today, Choose the way of Jesus tomorrow. Choose the way of Jesus Tuesday. Choose the way of Jesus and daily make that choice. And then you'll be able to look back on your life. Who or what do you worship? Who or what do you follow? Those decisions were made on a daily basis when you choose to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. So this morning, if we can pray for you, if you've gotten off path somewhere, if you feel like you need to make that decision for yourself or for your family, it may be one of those Mount Carmel moments where you need to come forward and say, I commit to following Jesus, and I've been off path. I've been limping between two different things. Then we'll invite you to do that. You can publicly make that claim. You can rededicate yourself. But I also invite you that if you want to start the journey with Jesus and you want to have a conversation about what it means to be baptized into Christ, I'm available to talk to you, and so are our elders. And then I just want to challenge you to go out and choose the way of Jesus on a daily basis. Let's stand and sing.